Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about the history, the evolution, and some new things going on in the index fund category. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I'm Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you, bud. Good to see you, too. We are back to our regularly scheduled programming, meaning at least that we don't have to be the ones that edit this this week. And I'm thrilled for that because I went back and listened just very briefly last week to what I edited on my own versus what normally comes from our professionally produced podcast every week and was shocked at how bad I sounded in the one that I did. So hopefully we're back to sounding good this week. And it just validated for me how worth it it is to have the professionals do what they do best when it comes to editing a podcast. Yeah, I certainly appreciate that role being taken off our plates. By no means, at least would I consider myself a professional podcast editor. I think you probably have a little more experience than I do, but I know even you were happy to offload that work to a fantastic editor. Yeah, no no question about it. That That is an improvement for us. And uh, I think just going back to doing it ourselves again validated how how valuable that is. So much appreciated. All right, Dan, we only had two ideas for swag. And it seems pretty universal that my idea for the reusable shopping bags is not the winner. I think people hated my idea. We posted a second idea, which was a wine key on our Instagram, which is at check your balances on Instagram. That seemed like it got a lot more love than what I was trying to do. So I think the people have spoken. The people have spoken. In fairness, I don't think people hated your idea. I just think people didn't care about your idea about reusable bags. But people were very passionate about wine keys, myself included, because I feel like those are the types of things that you'll have around your house forever. They just find their way into a drawer and then become your go-to item for opening bottles of wine. And I think that's cool. We might find a place in people's home for an uncomfortably long time. You know, that's part of why I wasn't as excited about it, to be honest with you is I haven't had to buy a wine key in like a decade. They don't break as long as you're not doing anything crazy with them. I don't need one. I I will use ours. I will absolutely replace whatever I'm using in my home today with the one that says check your balances on it because I want to use our branded swag if we've got it. But in my mind, I'm like, who needs one of these? I I, it, I think there needs to be like seven or eight of those made a year. I don't, I don't think people need them, right? Like, why would anybody need to replace these unless they're just constantly losing them or breaking them or throwing them out? It just seems like a, a wasted product to me. Here's what we do. You write a question to us at checkyourbalances@outlook.com. You mail us your wine key, and then we replace it with a brand new Check Your Balances wine key that will live in your home forever. This has turned into a much more complicated transaction. <laughs> Two-way mail. The, I love it. The whole point of the thing is really just that we want to encourage people to participate. This show is much more fun when we know what our listeners want to hear about, when we know what questions are on your mind. This is not just that we like printing stuff and shipping it across the country. It's really to encourage that participation. To that point, I had one more idea that we will put out there. This may be a bad idea. I think the logistics of it are still a little bit confusing to me. but. The question is, 
would people want to hear their own voice on our show? Rather than us reading your questions or reading an email that you send to us, would it be fun if you called in and I, I guess we'd do it as like you leave a voicemail and then we can play the voicemail on the air where you get to actually ask your question live. Now, I know some people prefer to be anonymous when they ask their questions, and that's fine. We're still happy to do this over email. But I was curious if people would enjoy that aspect of being able to hear their own voice asking the question rather than we read it back or paraphrase it back. I love that idea. I think for most people, the answer is probably yes. Although we will still have the email option if you prefer not to hear your own voice or have other people hear your voice. I mean, we can't do it live, right? We're not gonna we're not gonna do it as a live call in show, but we could certainly set up a phone line that is dedicated to accepting check your balances calls. Definitely, I, I think we can easily do that. I also love the idea of a live check your balances event, but that's for down the road. We'll we'll table that idea for now. Oh boy, Dan. All right, let's get into our actual show today, and we're gonna wander a little bit with this. You know, it's something that comes up, and this is a bit of a pet peeve. I think it definitely is for me, Dan. I suspect you get this as well, which is people talking very loosely about, am I beating the market? How am I doing relative to the market? And when you're asking that, what you're really asking is how you're doing relative to an index. I think the world of index funds has continued to evolve. It's gotten more complex. There are new additions to that world that we think are worth exploring and talking about on this show because I think that they're going to change the product category a little bit. But I think it's one of those things that we talk about so ubiquitously that we never really get into why do these even exist? What are they? And very coincidentally... Brian Feraldi, who has been on our show, posted an Instagram about the creation of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is basically the original index that people started following many, many years ago in the 1800s. Dan, did you find that interesting? I didn't know really how it started. So I did know, having read books that were written in the early 1900s about the Dow Jones Industrial Average, but it's always interesting to revisit that because I don't think a lot of people do understand, first, that the Dow Jones has been around since the late 1800s, and now it's evolved a little bit since then. But because it's such a staple, talking about things that are in people's houses for 100 years, the Dow Jones has been there. People often refer back to that as like, the benchmark index, especially if you have a little bit more seasoning to you as an investor, just because that's the one that you've heard quoted so often. But I think it's interesting to unpack the index and find out what's happening underneath the hood to see whether that should really be your gold star for how you measure performance. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average created by Charles Dow and Edward Jones. The fact that we're talking about like what Edward Jones... In my mind, Edward Jones has been an advisory company that... I'm not going to take shots at Ed Jones guys because most of them are very fine people, but uh, I, I like to have a little fun at their expense when we're not on the air. But these two guys are basically writing about stocks and they're having so much trouble just telling people generally, were things good or bad yesterday? Were things good or bad this week, this month, this quarter? And rather than try and quantify that and be specific about well, things sort of went well. Some things went up. Some things went down. They create, I think it, or the original index was what, 12 companies? They create a 12-company index and they're like, all right, we're just going to follow these because these are the ones we're always talking about. And they add up the prices and I think divide it by 12. 
to say, this is going to be the Dow Jones. So you said something important. So the way they calculated the price of that index and are measuring how it's moved is based on the price of the stocks. So that's why the Dow Jones is what we call a price-weighted index. So a company with a higher stock price is going to get more weight in the index than one with a lower stock price. And I know we've talked in the past about this on our show, but people tend to fixate on how much a stock is trading for as a measure of whether it's expensive or cheap. But stock price almost has nothing to do with that. But the Dow Jones is built on the actual share price of the companies that went into the index. Yeah. So it started as kind of a weird concept at the outset. That index eventually evolves to be 30 companies. And as we roll forward today, and we're having trouble verifying this number because there's so many of them, the estimate for how many indices there are, this comes from the Index Industry Association, 3.3 million investment indexes that now exist in the world. When you told me that number, I basically dragged our show prep to a halt because I'm like, no, we're going to find multiple sources to verify that because that is an outrageous number for investment indices. So they, they had a press release, and this was that same organization, the IIA, and this was in 2018 that they did a survey and they found 2.96 million indexes globally. So I, I, it doesn't shock me if that number has ballooned to 3.3 million. I was using BARD, which is the Google AI experiment, to get that data originally. I just asked it how many there were, and it found it much faster than I did. But So yeah, we can't completely verify that there's that many, but let's just call it a lot. There are now a ton of ways that you could measure the performance of whether it is a completely super broad market index or something incredibly niche that is single industry single investing style like value or growth, single country, right? I mean, that you can access almost anything or measure almost anything with an index now. It's become an incredibly broad thing. In fairness, you can just make an index. We know of someone who has done that between the period where this press release came out and today, and they just crafted their own index. And then magically, you can have an index fund that follows the index that you created. Now, this can be very valuable, there is value for creating indices because it does make it easier for people to follow certain investment strategies that you may otherwise want. So going all the way back to the Dow Jones creation, we had a, a fairly simple index of 12 stocks that has evolved over time into this really wild west of indices. But in between 1896 and today, there was a, a revolution of sorts for index funds that came about in the, in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, it's Jack Bogle, very famous at Vanguard for creating the index fund and really starting the revolution towards passive investing. And in my mind, there's been a couple big decision points or, or kind of impact points along the way of the index fund. Obviously, the creation of it, which the very first index fund was the Vanguard 500 index that tracks the S&P 500. For the reasons we've talked about already, that the S&P 500 is a market cap weighted index versus a price-weighted index, I tend to find it to be more relevant. It is shockingly in lockstep with the Dow almost all the time, which I still have trouble believing because the Dow is only 30 companies, but it remains relevant. People still talk about it on the news. You'll, I hear on the radio all the time, Dow's down 200 points, and you're like, who cares? But <laughs> for, for whatever reason, that's still something that we're tracking constantly is what those 30 companies are doing. 
But the S&P 500, I think of as kind of the more relevant index for, for the U.S. markets. So anyway, that's the first kind of major fund. And then now it seems like we're getting into this place where there's more rapid evolution. So I think the ETF was really the next really major index fund introduction where you go from an index mutual fund that only trades once a day. So you can buy into it. You can place your order anytime during the day, but it's going to trade at 4 p.m. Eastern every single time that you buy an index mutual fund. If you wanted to get out during the day, the market's moving rapidly. If it's a time of turmoil, you do not get to pick your price. And ETF solves that. We can change them back and forth among investors. So we can get them to change hands between you and I, Dan, or these companies will create new units. And so they become, I think, a really flexible tool. And I generally prefer ETFs with one exception. For people that are dollar cost averaging, for people that want to just set up a regular buy-in to a fund, I think the mutual funds are much easier to do that. But for almost all other purposes, I think the ETF is superior. I think it's worth sitting on that point for a second because it's shocking how often that comes up. So we always say you should set up recurring savings, recurring investing. So that's that's a data point that we put out into the world and that I think a lot of people know. I should automate my savings and make this easy and regular. On the other side, I think people also like investing in ETFs. It's for all the reasons that you mentioned. They're a more flexible tool. You can control your entry, exit, trade intraday. You can do options if you wanted to. So you think, all right, I'm going to set up my account. I'm going to put my money monthly into these ETFs. But to do that, every month you need to go and actually place the trade to make those purchases, where for a lot of the index funds, you can set up money to go directly into those and avoid that middle step of having to log into your brokerage once the money hits, figure out how many shares of each you need to buy and actually place those trades. So if you're looking for truly the hands-off solution, oftentimes those index-based mutual funds are going to be better solutions for you. Yeah. If you're self-managing the account, now if you've got an advisor doing it or some service, whether that's a robo, whether that's a, a human advisor, whatever that is, obviously they're going to take care of that part for you. But if you're setting up a self-managed account, just putting the money in the account, it's going to sit there in cash until you place a trade. And I do like that you can generally set up an easier dollar cost averaging strategy into a fund. But other than that, I think the ETF is a, is a superior product in most ways. So you've got those two kind of big points. And then in recent history, you've had a lot of evolution. You've had active indexes come out where people are actually, like a Kathy Wood, choosing the stocks that are in their portfolio. And they have to report daily what's in them because of that activity. They have to constantly report what they're buying, what they're selling. So that's part of how she makes the news as often as she does is that people can see what she's doing and then they talk about it. Where with most mutual funds, when the manager makes a move, you hear about it sometime in the next quarter because they only have to report quarterly what they did. In any case, that keeps them in the news quite a bit more because we're constantly seeing, oh, Kathy sold X, Y, and Z. And you're like, okay, cool, whatever. So that's been kind of, I think, a little bit of an evolution. What's happening now is what's called direct indexing. And I'm more excited about this than some of the other advancements we've seen in recent years. I think this makes a lot more sense than just being excited about a, an active index. Dan, do you want to go through what direct indexing is and kind of how, how important this could be? Sure. So when you're buying an index fund or an ETF, you are buying basically one security 
that is an umbrella for whatever the underlying stocks are of that index. So if you're buying an S&P 500 ETF, you're buying ABC 500 fund. And underneath that fund, there are 500 stocks, but you don't own those 500. You own the ETF. When you make a decision, you are making the decision on that one security. I'm going to buy or sell the S&P 500 ETF. With direct indexing, it works a little bit differently. Instead of owning the fund, you are owning direct shares in the companies that make up that index, or at least a representative sample of the companies that make up that index. So when you log into your account, it's a lot, you're probably going to have to do a lot of scrolling because you might have 30-ish, if you're doing the Dow Jones, up to hundreds of stocks to get exposure to that index. But with that comes many advantages. Yeah. And the advantages here are specific, I think, to two categories of people. So a direct index, what they allow you to do is kind of two things. Number one is that you could express a preference inside the index. And so again, let's stick with the S&P 500 as the example here. If there was something that you wanted to avoid inside the index, either because let's say you work there and you don't want more exposure to the company that you work for, or there's an industry that you're trying to avoid because there's something about it that you don't like or that you don't believe in as an investor. I I always joke, if you're a Coca-Cola man and you don't want Pepsi in your portfolio, you can express that viewpoint. That's it. Yeah. So you, you can express a viewpoint even through an index where otherwise, when you're buying an index fund, you buy, you just buy the whole thing. I find that interesting. The second thing that is more interesting to me is the tax advantages in a taxable account. So in an IRA, this isn't a big deal. But in a taxable account, let's think about a year like 2022. You've got a bunch of stocks that have lost money. That's an opportunity for tax loss harvesting. You could be selling things that have lost money in 2022 But the problem is, if you are just in a plain vanilla index fund, you have to sell the whole thing. You cannot selectively choose to remain invested in that fund while tax loss harvesting. And so what a lot of people do is one of two things. They either sell the whole fund, they wait for the wash sale rule to go away, which is a 30-day waiting period, and then they buy it back. The disadvantage there is that you've spent 30 days out of the market. If there was a recovery, if there was a pop, who knows? I have no idea what the market's going to do in a 30-day period. If you're telling me that you do, I think you're wrong. I think you're just making that up, right? So over any 30-day period, you have no idea what the market's going to do. The second alternative is that you swap the position out. You buy something different. But to avoid those wash sale rules, in theory, you have to buy something that tracks a different index. So you know, if you sell Vanguard's S&P 500 ETF, which is VOO, and you buy the iShares S&P 500 ETF, which is IVV, that's not really going to satisfy the IRS if they come looking and they audit your transactions. Now, that maybe the broker flags it, maybe they don't, but that would be a violation of the wash sale rule to just rebuy the S&P 500 in a different form. You have to buy a different index. And now you've changed your portfolio. If you go from the S&P 500 to a total stock market index, you've introduced mid caps, you've introduced small caps potentially, right? So you, you've completely just changed the composition of your portfolio. Maybe it's immaterial to you. Maybe you look at that and you go, yeah, whatever. It's US stocks. It's large cap tilted. Who cares? But for people that are being more specific, that's a problem. The direct index allows the manager of the direct index 
rather than you having to sell the whole fund and throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, you can just trim the losers. You can do tax loss harvesting while remaining mostly invested and just sell specific stocks in your account that have gone down rather than selling the whole index fund. I think that's a revelation. I think where that's interesting as well is even in a year where the index does well, it doesn't mean that every company in the index does well. So there's an opportunity to harvest losses even in an otherwise good year in the market. So if your personal situation is very sensitive to taxes, here's an opportunity to bank losses to help you either year by year or potentially accumulate losses for a future tax gain that you're anticipating. And again, this isn't for everyone. And I think in general, tax loss harvesting is overblown in a lot of cases, like you're just resetting basis lower. But because of the specificity of direct indexing, I think there are actually a lot more benefits to implementing it in this way than in the way that people normally talk about it with just parsing your whole portfolio and selling losers and rebuying them later. Yeah, no, I, I think this is a lot more interesting because yeah, you're basically not having to leave the index. You're you're culling the losers across, you know, time, and then you're replacing them. Now, the way that this has been done in the versions of it, I've seen a bunch of companies have introduced this already. Vanguard's got it. Schwab's got it. I'm sure Fidelity has it. Investnet has introduced products that do this on on the uh, investment advisor side. The way Schwab's works, because that's the one I, I've used. They're buying a representative sample of the index. So Schwab is actually, their large cap one is on the, this is getting very technical. And I'm not pitching this fund, by the way. I'm not telling you you should go out and do this. I'm just trying to explain how it works. So Schwab's is based on the Schwab 1000, which is an index that they created. Charles Schwab himself, Chuck created the Schwab 1000. That's a proprietary index. It's very similar to the S&P 500. It's probably between that and and an all U.S. market index because it goes out to a thousand companies, so you're getting some more of that mid-cap exposure. Rather than buying all 1,000, they buy a representative sample, so it's going to be similar. It's going to hold the top names. It's going to have to hold those really big companies that are five, six percent of the index. And then, as it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, they're going to hold what looks like the index on a market cap basis. It's going to look like the index on a sector basis. It's going to look like as as close as they can get it so that it performs just like the index, but doesn't have to own all thousand companies. And that gives them the flexibility to swap out those losers for something that would be comparable. So just like Dan said, if if you sell Coke and you buy Pepsi, you know, yes, you're gonna have a slightly different operating portfolio, but from a sector basis, from a market cap basis, you're gonna stay fairly similar if you're making very comparable swaps like that. As you can imagine, today it takes higher portfolio sizes to be able to benefit from direct indexing. You're owning hundreds of companies. You need to spread those dollars across a a lot of names. But my hope is that over time, with the introduction of fractional shares becoming more prevalent across brokers, this might be more accessible to portfolios of all sizes, although I still think it's not exciting to scroll through many pages of stocks that you hold. But hopefully they can do an expand and reduce situation when you log in. Yeah, I I think we wanted to talk about this because I really think this is where the industry is going. I think more and more, as people have kind of embraced index investing, this is going to be where we can add some value. And I I think that 
more and more tax planning has been incorporated into financial planning. Certainly all of the seminars that I, I see come across my desk in terms of kind of continuing ed that we have to do have been tax focused in recent years. And so I think advisors are just getting better at this. They're looking for more and more ways to add value into the portfolio as people are saying, hey, I'm just going to buy the index. Well, yeah. But that question then goes, well, which one and which indices are you going to track and which how should you be allocating a portfolio? It's a way deeper question than I'm just going to be an index investor. In theory, there could be as many as 3 million products out there following different indices. I don't think there's really that many index funds, but could be. And, and there's that many different ways to track what you're doing inside your, your portfolio. Every time we cite one of these obscure indexes, I always laugh because the name sounds so funny. Even like the Schwab 1000, like, is that some high-tech computer? situation or the russell 2000 which i think you had a college experience with right i did my portfolio theory professor in college his name was dr russell wormers that was a great class shout out to to dr wormers but in all of our examples he was using the russell 2000 as an index that we were answering questions about and i thought he made up an index and named it after himself for the purposes of our exam questions and it was only till later that year that i discovered this was a real index the yeah, Russell it, 2000 was not, as far as I know, named for or created by Dr. Russell Wormer. That's like being in a class where the professor wrote the book, and then you're just like, wow, really uh, patting yourself on the back there, choosing your own book for us to learn from. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, patting he, those numbers? Yeah. I, I don't think he actually invented that index. I think it comes from somewhere else. But You know who should create an index is Andre 3000. I would, I would buy that fund. The Andre 3000 index. <laughs> and we just lost most of our audience with that reference. All right. Well, we hope this was helpful. I, I thought it was valuable just to go back and talk about some of the history of what's under the hood on these things. I think we talk about it so ubiquitously, so universally, that just understanding what is an index and, and why do they exist and where did they come from, it's going to continue to evolve. And uh, I hope that the product category continues to get better and that we have better and better tools in our bag as advisors. So we hope this was helpful. If you've got questions for us, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address. We'll work on figuring out a way to have you leave us a voicemail. We got a, we talked about that before even having that settled, but uh, if you like that idea, we'd love to hear from you as well. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. 